Merry Christmas. So we're in a series called Bearing Christmas, and here's the idea. Uh, the big picture is we're taking some women in the lineage of Jesus and telling their stories. And the story that I want to tell you today is from a book in the Bible and a lady uh, with a, whose uh, book bears that name, Ruth. And Ruth is one of the most interesting characters in the Bible, as we're going to see as we see, as we kind of get a peek into her story. But one of the, I think probably the most famous verse, if not one of the most famous verses in the book of Ruth, uh, is found in chapter one. And we'll read it here on the screen. It says, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So I was uh, watching this TED Talk a couple weeks ago, and the guy giving the talk was the last director of a study that had been going on with regard to happiness. Harvard commissioned a study on what makes people happy 80 years ago. And what they did was they took 724 men and they checked in with these men once a year um, for, I guess, 80 years. And so it's very fascinating. They didn't just do like questionnaires or like, you know, letters or now emails. They actually went to the guys' homes, each home, um, got their medical records, blood drawn, brain scanned, all that kind of stuff. They even talked to their children. And they were looking for keys to what led these guys to be happy over their lives. There were two groups. The first group was a bunch of sophomores at Harvard who graduated and went into the war. This is World War II. They also took a group of disadvantaged boys from South Boston uh, in the 30s, and those were the two groups. Those made up the 724 men. They tracked, and the study just ended. And they extracted all these findings about what made these men happy. Now, you would think... What made them happy was stuff like houses and, you know, hobbies and Camaros and stuff like that, right? You would think it would maybe even have to do with their job satisfaction that, you know, they found the right job and they felt purpose in their work and maybe they, you know, married the right person and, and, and all those things were certainly a factor. But what do you think the number one indicator of happiness was for these men? It was friendship, it was friendship. When these men felt like they had deep abiding relationships and it kind of ebbed and flow, as you know, if you live long enough, right? You know, like you get in high school and you get your high school buddies, you get college, you get your college buddies, you think, oh, this is the way it is forever. Like we're just gonna be buddies, for, and then you kind of get in reality. And you know relationships ebb and flow, but what they noticed in the study was when there was deep abiding relationships, that was what made these men most happy. I don't think it's just men. I think it's all of us. I think it's men, women. It's this cry in our heart that we want, that we need, that we desire, that we long for friendship. Well, that's what the book of Ruth is about. It's about friendship. One of the things that happened to get us to this point in the book of Ruth was uh, a couple of people had to leave uh, Israel, Elimelech uh, uh, and this, guy, this gal named Naomi because of famine. They literally left Israel to this place called Moab and they had two sons that went with them. 
uh, to try to survive this famine. And these two sons married in country. They married in this new country, two Moabite women. One's name was Orpah, and the other one's name was Ruth. And so they're married. Now, something tragic happens. We're not really told what it is, but Elimelech and the two sons die tragically. And so Naomi is left with Orpah and Ruth in this foreign country, and Naomi knows this is bad. Because in ancient societies, uh, women were treated a lot like property unless they were married. They were treated a little bit better. Now she's not married. She's in a foreign country. She knows uh, her life is not going to go well, but she wants a better life for her daughter-in-laws. And so she begins to urge them and encourage them uh, to go find some husbands. She's gonna go back to her homeland because she thinks she's got a better shot at having a good life there. But she says to Ruth and Orpah, stay here. Now what's interesting is Orpah agreed with her advice and her counsel. And it says in the text that she kissed Ruth, I mean Naomi, and went away. But Ruth clung to Naomi and then she said these words. And what we see in Ruth is Ruth is a clinger. And let me tell you something. I know sometimes we use that word. Oh, she's too clingy. He's too clingy. You want a friend who clings. And that's exactly what Ruth became for Naomi. And what she began to do for Naomi is what I want to encourage you to do for others. Because what a, what a friend does, what a radical friend does is it becomes the kind of person that can be trusted. Be, it, a radical friend is the kind of person that everyone wants in their life. Listen, we've all got fans, right? But we need radical friends because we need hope and we desire happiness. And the quickest way to receive hope many times and as the study shows and as our hearts tell us, the way we get happy uh, long-term is by having deep friendship. So what do radical friends do? We see this in and around the life of Ruth. The first thing what Ruth does is she literally cooperates with what God is doing in Naomi, with God's work in Naomi. She says, do not urge me to leave you. Now, you have to understand, when they went to this place called Moab, um, that word literally means who's your daddy, right? Um, so, so, so they go to this place. It is a place filled with idols, meaning that in Israel, the, the, the revelation was there is one true God, right? He made the heavens and the earth. We don't worship the sun, the moon, the stars, and the trees. We have a God. But in Moab, they didn't understand that. They didn't have that revelation. And so they worshiped everything. They, if they needed a, a child, they worshiped the fertility God. If they needed rain, they, <clears throat> they worshiped the rain God. And so this is a land filled with idolatry. Idolatry is when we take created things and we, and we make them the creator, <clears throat> either practically in our worship or practically in our lives. We serve them instead of serving God. You, you, you use idols to meet very legitimate needs in your life, but in a very illegitimate way. Well, that's what Ruth is encouraging Naomi as Naomi is saying, I wanna leave. Ruth is saying, yeah, let's do this together. Let's be a part of this together. And she's saying, let's walk together. You need friends who do two things in your lives. 
You need friends who comfort you, and you need friends who challenge you. That's what it means to cooperate with the work of God, because that's what God does in us. God comforts us, and God also challenges us. If you've got a God who only challenges you, you don't understand uh, all of who God is. If you've got a God who only comforts you, you don't understand all of who God is. God comforts, God challenges. That's what good friends, real friends, radical friends do. And this is what Ruth did for Naomi. What Ruth did for Naomi, and we're gonna see it, is she helped her deal with her wounds. Now, a few months ago, I was teaching some pastors, and I was trying to get at this idea that some of our wounds are not our fault. Some of our wounds have nothing to do with any decision that we made, right or wrong, right? It's just, it happened to us. Uh, you know, if, you're, if you have been a uh, product of abuse in any way, and they say the statistics are one in six men have had sexual abuse, one in three women, <clears throat> well, that wasn't the kind of abuse that I suffered, but it was some physical stuff in my home that I dealt with. And it's so hard to believe when you go through something like that that it's not your fault. It's very hard. That's one of the first steps in counseling is you kind of go, wait, I didn't cause this. This was done to me. Well, that's part of what a wound is. I'll give you a definition here. A wound is a tender place that needs healing, like when you've been sinned against, but it's also a broken place that needs repentance. And so what friends do is they help us discern between these two. See, friends help comfort us in our tender places because we've been sinned against, but they challenge us in broken places because we need to repent, we need to turn from certain things. And what Ruth did with Naomi was, she's like, hey, you're turning from these gods. We're leaving Moab, we're leaving our gods behind, and we're walking true the, to the one and true God, and I'm gonna be with you in that. She cooperated with God's work in her life. And so what happens is they get there, and all of a sudden, they recognize Naomi. And they say, hey, Naomi, her name means pleasant or sweet. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which is the word for bitterness. See, she's coming back to a country that she left in hope. And now she's full of despair. She's coming back empty. She's coming back bitter. She left, she thought, with God's blessing. Now she's feeling like she's cursed she left with a husband full of hope for a better life and she's coming back as a widow full of grief and depression. And say, so what does Ruth do? She enters into that pain. This is what radical friends do. She enters into that pain. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. What does that mean? I'm not just coming with you, I'm living with you. We're bunking up, we're roomies. I'm gonna live with you. I'm gonna sit with you at night when you're lonely. I'm gonna, gonna be with you in the day when you're crying for no reason. I am going to be here for you. That's what friends do. And, and Ruth just says, you know what? I'm gonna absorb your pain. That's, see, what's hard about friendship is it's hard when you just have to be with people but you have nothing to say. And, 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 and a lot of times when people are going through grief, this is what it's like. Right? She, I don't know if you have experienced grief. Sometimes the holidays bring up this, don't they? 
I mean, we have grief um, about the people um, that we're getting ready to spend time with, right? There's a little grief there sometimes. But there's also grief about the people that we wish we could spend time with because they're no longer here. And so you go through this, and, and Christmas reveals that. I think a lot of us are probably grieving, and we don't even know it. We just kind of push it down. And you say, well, I don't, I don't like those sad feelings. I don't want to dwell on the past. Well, let me tell you something. If you push it down, guess what's going to happen? It's going to come out. You can't push it down. God has designed us to grieve. Even Jesus wept. Right? He grieved. How do you know if you're grieving? Well, if you look at Naomi's life, she's exhibiting all signs of grief. She's in despair. She seems to have lost hope. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She's in disbelief. I think she's, did this loss really happen? I can't believe I'm back here without my husband. Emptiness, right? Just feeling like nothing is there. Uh, uh, isolation, all by herself. Basically said to Ruth and Orpah, just leave me alone to my bitterness and isolation. She's probably in shock, still kind of numb from this terrible event. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, who else lost a husband in this story? Ruth lost a husband. This brings me to a very important point. Ruth is grieving too. You don't have to have your act together before you help someone deal with their losses. Well, I just gotta get my stuff together and, and, I, and I've gotta really get healed up in order to heal people. Well, if you're, if, if you're waiting to get healed up before you heal people, nobody's gonna get healed because you're not gonna get perfectly healed up in this life. You're not gonna have it all together. You're not gonna fix everything that's wrong. Don't let that be an excuse. Ruth didn't. In fact, a lot of times, I don't know if you found this to be true, when I'm kind of going through stuff, when I help other people or I extend myself for other people, a lot of times I find that their stuff is worse than mine. And I get strangely encouraged. <clears throat> like, man, I thought my deal was bad. Whoa. But it's not just that. Sometimes I help other people. They don't have the same problems I have. But what happens is, in the act of being a friend, my eyes are off me and onto them. And something supernatural begins to happen. And I realize that despite my imperfection, I can help as God begins to perfect the people around me that I'm serving in friendship. You don't have to have it all together to be helpful. And this brings me to my buddy, Paul. This is Paul. So... Paul and I's lives fell apart at the same time about three years ago. Different circumstances, but same deal. And so we got together. We had mutual friends before this. We started having, like, coffee pretty regularly. And, I, you know, the first couple times we had a lot to say, and about the third or fourth time, you ever, like, have coffee with somebody, and you're like, why are we here? It was kind of like that. Because we were just drinking coffee and just kind of, Staring at each other. But then we would muster up some kind of semblance of some kind of encouragement or whatever to each other. And, and then sometimes I would encourage Paul and I would leave the coffee like, God used me and this was awesome. And, and man, I'm, and, and then the other times he would encourage me. 
And then, and, then, and then sometimes in the same coffee time, I would encourage him with certain words and then I would get discouraged a little bit later in the conversation and he would use the same words on me that I was using on him, right? We're, and we still meet and we still talk. We're buddies. We, talk, we, talk every, we see each other once a week and talk on the phone a couple times a week. We're still not together, right? We, we still, but we encourage each other. We entered each other's pain, and I'm guessing whoever dies first, the other one will be at the funeral, right? We, we will be buddies for life because we entered each other's pain. You never forget the person who enters your pain. One of my pastor buddies calls it, you gotta have some gutter brothers. When you're in the gutter and you need a brother, right? Somebody's gonna enter the, the slime and stink of life with you. That's what Ruth did for Naomi. And you know, to that point, she inconvenienced herself for Naomi. This is what friends do. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Now, what this meant was for Ruth to follow Naomi meant she was gonna be a persecuted minority the rest of her life. She's a Moabitess, she's going into Israel. So she's saying, as I take up your God and forsake my other gods, the people who relate to your God are not really gonna understand that. And so I'm gonna literally suffer with you, even though these are not my people. What she's doing is she is literally telling Naomi, I'm gonna be the type of friend that everybody wants. There's two types of friends. There are time friends. These are people that hang out with you, that you have fun with, maybe you go golfing with, all right? Just time, they're together all the time. But when the crisis hits, they don't have resources to help you, so they kind of pull back, or they don't know what to do. They're not bad people, they're just not equipped for that. Now, on the other side, you have commitment people. These are people, so time people in, in, in Ruth's language would be um, where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay. Commitment people would be in the next verse, in verse 17 of chapter one, where you die, I will die. In other words, I'm gonna be there in the pain. These are commitment people. So you don't really hear from them day to day. You may not even talk to them, but if a crisis happens and you're in the hospital, they show up. You guys know what I'm talking about here? All right, now here's the key to being a radical friend. You do both. You do both. You can't do it with everybody, but you're with people in the normal, and then you're with them in the nasty. You're with them, in the, in the pain and you're with them in the practical. That's what Ruth promises to be. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. I am here because I'm not a kisser, I'm a clinger. I'm here long term. And Naomi needs this, she has no sons to take care of her and so Ruth becomes the breadwinner in the family. And in that day, you know, wealthy people would have land and the, the law, the Bible commanded that in that, if you had a field, if you had property, you know, har crops that were to be harvested, you were by law commanded to leave the edges unharvested so that the poor could come and glean, could come and harvest crops, food for their family. This is the best they can do. Two vulnerable women, what are they gonna do? This is all they can do. So Ruth's out there in the field trying to make a way for her new family. And just 
you know, by coincidence, not this guy named Boaz shows up because it's his field. And he sees this woman, and we don't know what he sees, but he sees something that, that in his heart he says, I have to help. I gotta do something about this. Well, this is a problem. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna solve that problem, right? This is my problem. This isn't just a problem. This is my problem. And he literally begins to be a friend to this woman named Ruth. Now, it doesn't make sense because she's a woman. Men don't talk to women in that culture, especially a woman of the field, especially a foreign enemy. And he begins to pursue her, and, and, and he does what all good friends do. He begins to protect her, friends protect. He says, stay in my fields or you will be harmed. In other words, what people would do, poor people would do, they go from one field to another. They didn't wanna like make a scene and like dominate one field, so you pick a little here, pick a little there, but Boaz knew something. You're a vulnerable woman, you're, you're a Moabitess, you're probably gonna be, persecuted, made fun of, verbally abused. You might even be sexually abused. Stay here, I got you. I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna use my power not to use and abuse you. I'm gonna serve you, stay in my fields. And he gives her actually more than the law requires. And I'm sure Ruth at this point had already experienced some of the crazy of being a woman in this society. She probably had already had men. This wasn't the first field she probably went to. Men who wanted to you know, manipulate her, sleep with her, hurt her, and she's got this guy who is treating her like a human being. Boaz is not just a male, he's a man, and there's a difference. What men do is they protect women. They protect the vulnerable. They inconvenience themselves for the other, and he shows himself as a friend. He protects her. You ever had a friend protect you when you needed it, when you couldn't protect yourself? You couldn't protect your reputation? You, you, you couldn't protect your finances? You couldn't protect all the relational drama, and you had somebody in who covered, right, you? Such a beautiful picture. Uh, that there's... There's vulnerability, and somebody came in and just said, I'm gonna take care of you. That's what radical friends do. That's, this is what Boaz does, and he discovers that he is what's called a kinsman redeemer, which in Israelite law meant you could buy the land as the closest relative of the family that had lost it. That's probably what happened with Naomi's family. That, 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 that's why they had to move, because of you know, famine, debt, they couldn't produce, had to sell the land. Now, in the law, if the kinsman redeemer showed up, whoever currently owned the land had to sell it. So he had, but, he, but this, this is gonna require a process. And by the way, this doesn't make sense for Boaz to do that. It's a lot of money. Ruth's a foreign woman, right? She's an older woman, which, why would that matter? Well, not only does he have to buy the land to get the land, you know what he has to do? Marry the girl. So Boaz has to marry Ruth in order to help this family. He can't just like write the check. He's gotta get involved. And she's older. And he's a rich guy that could marry a younger woman. But he marries 
the older woman. He has to maneuver legally to get this relative to, it's, it's the law, but you had to really go through a law. He does all of that, and he marries her. And they have a child named Obed, whose name meant servant. And this child was the father of a guy named Jesse, who was the father of a guy named David, who was the king of Israel, who was in the lineage of Jesus. And so think about what's happened here. We have gone from poverty to riches, from bitterness to sweetness, from idolatry to worship, to, from a devastated life to a redeemed life from widowhood to marriage and from barrenness to birth, all because of radical friendship. All this happens to Ruth because she chose to do what was hard for someone who needed her. Now, can I promise you that if you're a radical friend that God's gonna give all these wonderful blessings? No, no, but I can promise you that you will be happier if you do. The studies show it, your heart tells you. There's something about when we sacrifice for others that it taps into this thing in us, and we can't even articulate it, that, that was made to serve, that was made to be generous. And when we extend ourselves for our friends, amazing things happen, not just to our friends, but to us. And friends, isn't that what Christmas is all about? Think about it. John 1, uh, 14 says, the word, Jesus, became flesh. And what does it say? He did what among us? He dwelt or tabernacled among us. That's the word, meaning he came to live in our mess. I mean, do I need to persuade anybody that the world's kind of a mess? And I, some of us are like, oh, it's really bad now. It's worse than it's ever been. Well, maybe, but probably not. It's always been a mess. And God comes into messes. And he comes in because he loves the people in the mess. Sometimes we get distracted by the mess. Well, I don't want to get in all that mess. Yeah, but there's a person in there in the mess. Yeah, I know, they're causing the mess. That's why I don't want to get involved. I, I know. But aren't you glad God doesn't have that attitude towards us? He gets right in there, right in the pain, in the struggle, in the sin, in the suffering, in the abuse. He gets right in there, and he says, I'm not leaving Because, and I love this, I love this so much. It, keep going to the Gospel of John, and he's talking to his disciples. He's, he's getting ready to be crucified, and, and he knows he's, he's got this final message, and he says to them, hey, up until this point, we've had this kind of relationship. It's called a servant relationship. But man, I'm going into the hardest part of my life as a human being. And I don't need servants, so I'm not gonna call you servants anymore. I'm gonna call you what? Friends. You're my friends. And his friends were there in the garden when he was basically saying to God the Father, if there's another way, let me out. And his friends fell asleep. 
So his friends let him down. And your friends will let you down. And you will let other people down. But Jesus did not let us down. He's a faithful friend. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's a radical friend that will gladly enter your pain, that will gladly inconvenience himself. This is the way God is. He goes into messy situations and he brings hope to messy people. That's the message of Christmas. That's our opportunity at Christmas, is to be those kind of people, to literally bear hope, to take it upon ourselves and say, you know what, I'm not waiting for the government to do it, I'm not gonna wait for some, you know, some other friend to do it, I'm not gonna wait for that family member that really should do it, do it. I am going to be a dispenser of hope. It's on me. I think that is a great burden to bear. If you have the courage to realize that God can use you even though you're a mess. So, I wanna encourage you. Listen, I, I know some of us are walking into some crazy stuff this Christmas. I know some of us, it, the emotions that get exposed in us are hard to deal with, but what if, just what if you could just raise your gaze a little bit and say, all right, God, I am going to look beyond my own life right now, beyond my own circumstance, beyond the cancer, beyond the marriage trouble, beyond the rebellious kids, beyond the broken relational family, beyond the financial challenge. I'm gonna look beyond all of that and I'm gonna say, you entered my mess and you befriended me and I'm not gonna go on a hole. I'm not gonna put a smile on it. I'm gonna embrace my own pain, but I'm gonna seek to be the friend that you've called me to be. My grandmother used to say this. I know you had grandmothers that said similar things. I guarantee it. She said, if you want a friend, you gotta what? You gotta be a friend. So let's do that together. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would give us a vision of your friendship toward us Lord, our, our opportunity is not to be like Ruth, but to be like the one to whom Ruth points. And Ruth points us directly and squarely at Jesus. He is a friend that sticks closer than the brother. And if we're gonna be a friend to others, we have to realize his friendship towards us. So let us see and savor that friendship today. Let us sense that God is with us. He is Emmanuel. He has not left us. He is with us in our mess, in our struggle, so that we can be in the mess with other people. And so, Lord, be kind to us today. Show us our wounds. Some of us have been sinned against relationally, and it's hard to trust some of us have sinned ourselves relationally and it's hard to move past our own comfort. But we receive your comfort and we receive your challenge today as we seek to be radical friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's what I'd like us to do at response time. We have crosses on all over the room. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to think about, stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about that 
friend, because I'm guarantee, I guarantee what's happening in your mind, some of us, is you're, when I talk about friendship, when I talk about being a friend, some of you are like, yeah, I tried that. And it didn't go so well because somebody betrayed you. And even as I was talking, you thought of that person's face and you know that person's name. What I want you to do on that piece of paper is I don't want you to write that down because our past woundedness in relationships sometimes keeps us from being the friends God's called us to be. And so that is the root behind some of your fruit. Well, I'm an introvert. I understand those are real categories. But you also just might be self-protective and in because you've been betrayed or let down. So if God brings something that, like a name, just write it down. Maybe there's somebody who sinned against you. You need to write that name down that should have been in a position of trust, but they violated that. You could write their name down and ask God to help you forgive. Forgiveness is the, is the currency of relationships. You gotta get fluid. You gotta get fluent in forgiveness. So that's one way you can respond. Another way you can respond, you probably got a friend. Maybe God's brought that person's face in your mind, that name to your lips, and you could just light a candle for that person and say, Maybe you're trying to be a friend and some people don't respond well sometimes when you try to be friendly. You notice that? Like you, you say hi to your neighbor and they don't even look at you. Isn't that fun? Right? So that frowny neighbor, light a candle for him. Or that person that you know you need to go the extra mile with. You need to do a little bit more inconveniencing of yourself for them. You could light a candle for them. We have friends in the back to pray for you um, because some of you are got working through some relational stuff or some spiritual questions. They're here to pray for you. And then finally, we've got a meal that we share together as friends of Jesus. It's called communion. And the good news is, though we're not perfect, he was. He lived a perfect life. And the Bible says all of our sin, all of our wounds, we've been sinned against and there's shame and guilt attached to that. That was nailed to a cross with him. And there's sin and rebellion on our part. That was nailed to a cross with him. And then the Bible says he went in the ground and then he came up out of the grave. He, three days later, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, everything stayed in the ground. All the power has been broken. You do not have to live under the influence of somebody else's words over your life. You do not have to live any longer bound by some thing that somebody did to you in your past. You can have freedom. That's what communion's about. So come and receive it with your other friends here who walk with Jesus. And by the way, we're doing that with just a couple billion people today. So be strengthened by that. You got friends you don't even know about who are trying to walk with Jesus like you are. So let's respond today.